You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Most of you know me pretty well and Alex, but um, this is our last service at Revolution, so I thank you, Dave, for allowing me to speak and uh, you know expound on God's Word tonight. Um, we're moving to Louisville for the next part of our lives, and it's been really cool. I just want to testify to God's um, goodness and, uh, and preparing us and, and confirming and establishing all the needs uh, through evolution and through um, other uh, appointments by God um, and establishing us to be able to move. So I just want to praise Him for that and thank you guys for your prayers and allowing us to... Um, know that this is where the Lord wants us, and we've been blessed to be here at Revolution. I've been here for like five years or so, and Alex, three and a half. Um, and so uh, tonight, uh, I'll this sermon is going to be a little bit more lengthy, kind of on the cusp of like two hours. Um, I, hey, it might not be good, but you will remember it for being long, if nothing else. Um, yes, so... Uh, I've spent two minutes, <clears throat> um, but uh, as you know, uh, this I think this is the last installment of this series, is that correct? Thank you for letting me get the capstone, Dave. Um, you guys probably know. Bible stories. Okay, thank you, Dave. You've been the only one paying attention for the last couple months, and that's no credit to you because you've been teaching it, so all of you need to repent. Um, but tonight, uh, this is the story of Jonah. Um, probably, I mean, it's probably, you know, debatable, I guess, depend on, uh, for person to person, but probably the most well-known story in the Old Testament besides the flood and maybe David and Goliath. And so, um, it was kind of cool to revisit this story and to look through it. And, um, uh, with that being said, my aim tonight is to kind of read through the whole book of Jonah and, it's okay, it's only four chapters, and most of the chapters are ten verses apiece. So, hopefully, it shouldn't be any longer than normal. But, um, I want us to look at this story with, with fresh eyes, just as hopefully we've been able to with the whole series we've been doing, um, and reflect on how it points to Jesus and what it means for us. And so, I know most of us are familiar with the book of Jonah, and so hopefully we can keep uh, one eye and ear on, on what we think we know, and um, another eye to an ear to um, what we look and, and see how it uh, points toward Christ. So I'm going to open up kind of this, this sermon by reading out of Exodus uh, 34, 6, and 7, and uh, we'll pray and we'll get into the book of Jonah. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for being a God that is full of mercy and steadfast love for being slow to anger. We ask that you would reveal yourself through your word tonight, 
through the story of Jonah that we may better get a glimpse of your mercy in his life and how his life points to Christ. May you speak through me. I am a weak man. May you glorify yourself tonight as we worship you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we dive into Jonah, here's a brief background introduction to the text. Um, As you probably know, Jonah is a prophetic book, but something that sets it apart from all the other prophetic books was a few things, but the main thing which it differs is that Jonah is not really about the word of the Lord that came to and through Jonah as much as it is primarily about um, a story about Jonah himself and the mission that God gave him to the Ninevites. So Jonah, uh, instead of being um, a series of prophecies or a series of uh, proclamations of judgment or salvation and whatnot about Israel and other nations, it's, it's a story. And so that's, it fits with the theme that we're doing, Bible stories. So, uh, but, but another thing, Jonah is perhaps, along with Job, maybe one of the most um, described as like a literary masterpiece. And, and so if you ever take time, study the book of Job. Go into an in-depth study, uh, more than what we can do in one night. Uh, it's, it's transparent in the English, but even in the Hebrew, I'm sure. Um, it, it's full of irony, satire, and uh, many illustrations um, and allusions that help draw out um, meaning in the text. And so... Uh, but but even though um, Jonah is is a story, um, a, you know a lot of we don't need to go in depth in this. But a lot of people have always um, there's a lot of interesting miraculous things in the book of Jonah, and so some people do not think Jonah is a real historical figure. Um, but in the book of Kings, we have historical attestations to the reality of Jonah, um, his ministers alongside Hosea and uh, Amos. And so that kind of gives you a little background at about 750 B.C. And so, though there are some supernatural things in the book of Jonah, um, we should all see everything that we read tonight as, as literally true. Um, because people of God have taken um, them to be true. The Word of God is true. If you are a believer, um, you believe that. And if you have any questions about that, of course, we can always talk afterwards. But that's kind of the setting. That's kind of the details that we need to kind of have in mind. But... I have entitled this sermon, um, The Mercy of God to Jonah, Through Jonah, and in Spite of Jonah. Um, And at first it was going to be just to the Ninevites, through Jonah. But um, through reading it several times, Jonah is blessed immensely. And so, um, and and in spite of him, and even though, and and through him. And so, the the core message of the book of Jonah that I want us to leave with, that I want us to see as we revisit the book of Jonah is the triumph of the mercy of God. And so, just as we read in Exodus, hopefully you have that fresh in your mind, um, the very name, attributes, and character of the Lord is that he is compassionate, he's merciful, and he's abounding in steadfast love. And so I think that is the purpose to reveal that, to reveal that nature of the Lord is the purpose of the book of Jonah. And so, um, the book of Jonah calls us, as God's people, to look on the compassion and the mercy of God that he's given to Jonah and, um, and to others. And so, right off the bat, we'll see that Jonah is not quite the prophet that we would ask for if he was among us today. Um, but what's most humbling, and I think, hopefully, that I want us 
all to gather as we read through the book of Jonah is though we're quick to call Jonah a crummy prophet because he, he, he flees the Lord, if, if you guys know the story. Um, in reality, uh, Jonah is probably the only example that the Bible gives us um, that calls us to be like, or that says we are like the prophet of God, um, that we are often more times like Jonah than we would like to admit. That you know, normally in the stories we're like Israel, or we're like the woman at the well, or you know, we're, 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 the, we're, we're not the prophet of God, we're, we're like the Pharisees, but because this story portrays Jonah as being kind of like a Pharisee, um, we, can, we should be able to relate to him. And so, this book... Um, will push us to consider and reflect on the mercy of God and think about in what ways we are or we are not um, reflecting the mercy of God. And so think about that. Truly think about that as we go through. And so we'll dive into the text here. Uh, Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And so right there, we get the story. Uh, got the, this story begins with God telling Jonah, okay, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go down to Nineveh. Um, their evil has come up to me. I've noticed it. And I want you to proclaim uh, judgment on their wickedness. And so first, um, in order for us to understand that, we need to recognize that, I recognize, I don't know how we're going to do that. Um, we need to recognize that Nineveh is a severely wicked city. Um, the entire book of Nahum, the three chapters, is devoted to just destroying uh, prophecy of, of um, the destruction of Nineveh that awaits it because of its wickedness. And um, it, it, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, so if you did not know that, uh, the Assyrians are one of, uh, at this time, Israel's most feared enemies. And so, uh, on top of their sexual immorality, their um, viciousness towards other nations, they would often attack nations and completely, utterly destroy um, in an immoral way and slaughter their enemies. And so, right off the bat, as a prophet, it, we're, we're kind of wrestling with this question, why is Jonah fleeing? Why, you know, he's a prophet. His job is to proclaim judgment and salvation to people. And, and so, why is he fleeing the presence of God? And so... Though we, we can debate this question, Jonah's not going to reveal the answer until the end. Um, but Jonah, above all people, being a prophet, should know the impossibility of fleeing from the Lord. Like Jonah, um, <laughs> like I, I imagine, you know, Jonah says, okay, you want me to, you want me to go to Nineveh? I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. And so Tarshish is like, you know, hundreds of miles in the complete opposite direction. You know, Nineveh's this way to the northeast and Tarshish is uh, to the west. And, and so um, it's like he thinks, really thinks God's going to say, okay, yeah, never mind. I'll just get Hosea or Amos to, to do this mission instead. No, no, Jonah, I don't know what's going through his mind. He's an idiot. But he, he's just completely forsaking the idea that God, well, I'm just going to flee from the presence of God, even though he's omniscient and omnipresent. It just, it just baffles me. But so we're wrestling with this idea, why is Jonah fleeing? But um, it's important to know that Jonah hates the Ninevites. And so one might think, well, um, uh, it, th- yeah, we can understand why they're vile people. You think that he delight in calling out judgment against the Ninevites, but I guess we'll ha- we'll see here in a few minutes why he flees. But 
principle we need to take in mind is that Jonah is disobeying the Lord and that he is going against his call to preach to the Ninevites. And so, continuing in verse 4, as he got on the ship to Tarshish, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah further trying. Um, and so, yeah, we stopped the text there. Um, so, trying to drown out the voice of God, Jonah goes deep into the ship as if he really could uh, stop from hearing the voice of God. And, and so we see um, God is starting to punish Jonah because um, he, he brings this, he, we see all throughout Jonah, this God is sovereign over creation. So God is bringing this storm upon the ship and the captain's like, what the heck? What, Jonah, what, you, how can you be sleeping? We're about to die in this storm. And so uh, the captain comes to wake up Jonah and says, call out to your God. Maybe, maybe he'll have compassion. Maybe he'll uh, stop the storm. And so, um, and so we have to recognize, too, the severity of the storm because sailors probably would have been used to storms. I mean, they're, they're sailors, and so they're out in the open sea all the time. So this must have been a severe storm that they recognize that this surely must only come by a God being angry at one of us or all of us. And so, to figure out what's going on, continuing in the text, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so we may know, know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly, exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And so, ironically, um, at first we might think it's a little humble for Jonah to say, Yeah, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. Um, but it's ironic because we know that he does not fear the Lord. He is a Hebrew, but he's directly disobeying the Lord um, by fleeing him. And so we see that though his words um, seem to be humble, they're actually very hollow. And um, Jonah's confession, you know, the God of who rules the, the, the earth and all the sea, and it's, it's, just, it's just not believable um, because he's disobeying the Lord. And so if he had actually been obeying the Lord, they knew um, that, that the storm probably wouldn't have come about. And so it's because of Jonah's disobedience that he causes, that causes him to jeopardize the sailors' um, sailors' lives. And, and notice that, that these sailors are Gentile or pagan sailors because they said, call out to your God, each one. And so um, Jonah's not being very considerate to these people. <clears throat> and so, but even though it's through Jonah's disobedience, I want you to also see um, God sovereignly being behind the scenes. And though, though even though Jonah is being disobedient, in spite of Jonah, um, he's going to be blessing these people. And so, we'll continue on the text. Though they, uh, then they said to him, 
What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so we see, just to recap, um, as the fear of the sailors grow, Jonah says that they should throw him overboard, and perhaps that will appease God's anger. And again, we want to notice that Jonah's response, well, that seems very brave, very humble, and very admirable about Jonah. But um, if we examine closely and about what's about to follow, um, seems, it seems on the face value that he's trying to sacrifice himself for the good of the sailors. But rather, I think, that he would rather die than continue to go to Nineveh. Because in reality, knowing the Lord God, he could cry out to him and say, Lord, Stop, stop the storm. I, I will go. Have, you know, forgive me. I will, I will go to Nineveh. And that's obviously not the case. Um, so he despises God's calling. And though he acknowledges his sin, though he acknowledges he's in the wrong, um, he tells the sailors the truth of the matter. Um, rather than call out to God to stop the storm, he's, he, he would rather die than continue in his goings to Nineveh. So while doing this, one of the severity of Jonah's um, case right now is that he's willing to put the blood of his own um, his own blood on the sailors' hands. And so further showing that he doesn't really care for these sailors. But seeing that the sailors are fearful for their lives, they say, okay, I guess uh, if, if this is the way to appease your God, then we must throw you overboard. And so <clears throat> even though these, these pagan sailors don't want to, because they know killing is wrong, especially one. If this Lord is the God, we do not want to kill his his prophet. And so, ironically, instead of Jonah, who's supposed to be showing mercy to these people as the prophet of God, um, it's ironic that these sailors, um, these pagan sailors, are showing mercy to him. But to Jonah's surprise, as we just read, storm grows more worse, and they cry out for mercy and repent to God as they throw him overboard. And so we see that the storm subsides. And they worship God um, as God saves them, as they are saved to God. And it's, so it's through Jonah's disobedience that we see um, the mercy of God convert these pagan sailors. And I and I think we should look at this as a true conversion. We could argue about this, but but most of the time, um, these outward physical savings are accompanied with an internal uh, salvation. And they even offer up vows to the Lord, committing themselves to Him. They offer up a sacrifice. To him, and they look to the Lord, uh, the Lord of, of Israel, as um, the God of salvation, and they don't look to themselves. They know that they cannot save themselves. So, we see that these uh, pagan sailors are saved, at least, at the very least, from physical destruction, but also, I would posit, to salva- internal uh, spiritual salvation. But, and so, as we see God's mercy rescuing these pagan sailors. God also extends his mercy to disobedient Jonah as he is swallowed up by the fish. 
and not left to drown in the raging sea. And we see that in Jonah's prayer coming up in, an, in a second. Um, so we see that this fish becomes the very instrument of God's mercy to rescue Jonah from the sea. And so in his prayer, he says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of, his, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look upon your, again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who paid regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So we see that as, as disobedient as Jonah was, he does, he does repent if you could call that prayer, that prayer a prayer of repentance. Um, and, and so it seems that Jonah commissions himself back to the Lord. He says, I make a vow to the Lord. The Lord is the Lord of salvation, and I will sacrifice what I have to. And so at this time, Jonah says, Okay, Lord, I'll go to Nineveh. I will go and preach to these peoples. But this is still, you know... This is still kind of a half-hearted prayer of repentance, and we'll see why later. But <clears throat> we'll continue on, I think, in, in chapter 3. So after he's up on, this, on the dry land, he's been spit out of the fish. We see, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an extremely or exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go to, into the city, going a day's journey, and then he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. And so we see something miraculous here. The text tells us that Jonah, Jonah is in this huge, enormous city, um, yes, that is a real word. Um, and, and it takes multiple days to walk through, right? At least a three days journey just to get through the city. And Jonah is ready to preach on day one. He's not even, you know, halfway through the city and he's ready to preach. He's ready to get this over with. Um, and just so you know, it, he says eight words here. Um, and yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, that's a weak sauce message. Um, and, and, and in Hebrew, it's only five words. And so, um, Jonah, at each step of his mission, is only trying to do the least amount possible. And so we see that um, he, in his message, he tells of the, he's foretelling the disaster of the city, but there's no mention of wrongdoing on the uh, Ninevites' part. There's no, um, there's no mention of how they are to respond. There's no mention of God or his law, what he demands. And there's especially no, um, no mention of that they need to repent. Um, that might be intent, implied, but... It's still no mention. And so we see that the very repentance upon some of these people in Nineveh is a miracle of God. 
through the weak message of Jonah. And so, <clears throat> but because of God's re- mercy, Jonah's plan doesn't really work. And so further explaining this event that's happened, we read, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink on water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we see the entire city, the ruler, the king, or the, um, uh, and then the people, and their livestock. That's some of the irony in, in this book. Um, they put sackcloth on, uh, and ashes on the livestock to show the genuineness of their repentance. And so we know Jonah says eight words that this city is going to be destroyed and everyone in the city repents. We know that this is truly the work of God and not something done um, by the work of Jonah because his message lacked everything, all content needed for true repentance. And yet this city has moved from judgment to repentance. And so we see the mercy of God through, um, despite um, the message of Jonah. And, and notice also, I thought it was very funny, that uh, Jonah was supposed to preach probably this message that he had been given for the Lord multiple times. And he preaches it once. And the only reason it moves throughout the city is that some people had heard that destruction is coming. And all, this word spreads throughout, not with the help of Jonah. And, and the king makes a decree. And so... It's just very, very ironic. I hope to pull that out just a little bit. But um, one thing that I noticed in the text that was really cool, um, in verse 4, if you see the, the word um, that, that some translations use as destroyed or overthrown, um, literally means uh, to be overturned. And so uh, further pointing this irony of, um, and the weakness of Jonah's message, that, that this city will be overturned if they do not repent. Um, and though physically, uh, it was judgment was not brought down. Judgment, uh, the city of Nineveh was not overturned. These people, these people uh, were overturned spiritually, and and so instead of another nation judgment coming to another nation, them being conquered and a new people dwelling there, Ninevites have turned over their nation, um, yet uh, with by repenting and calling on the mercy of God. So though this happens, um, you know, all is good and, 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 and finished, we would think. The people of Nineveh repent. Um, Jonah's done uh, his, his job. Um, but this is not the end of the book. We still have one more chapter. Um, so we, let's look at how Jonah responds to the mercy of God. And the word of the Lord says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And he said, O Lord, is this not what I had said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, 
Do you do well to be angry? Or is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah makes no response to the Lord. And so we see the truth behind Jonah's haste to flee away from the presence of God. And it wasn't because he was afraid uh, or, or fearful of the people of Nineveh, but he was afraid of the mercy of God. The truth is that Jonah hated the Ninevites, and he recognized that when God calls a people to, to repent, and no matter how far gone they are, God is merciful enough that the people may repent. He may grant repentance to the people. And so Jonah did not want the Ninevites to receive the mercy of God. They were pagan uh, people. They were cut off from salvation. They were evil and idolatrous. And so we see the reality of Jonah's heart here. And though in his prayer of repentance, Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord, in reality, Jonah wants salvation to belong to him. And though he quotes and knows that is intrinsic, and this is the very reason why he disobeyed God, because he knew God to be a merciful God and slow to anger and steadfast love. But his hatred of the Ninevites obscured him from seeing the mercy of God in his own life. So therefore he was not able to be merciful to them. So in bitterness and selfishness, Jonah retreats to a hill, hoping that people may forget why they've repented and that God may still bring destruction. So the rest of the chapter finishes up like this. Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he might be, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn had come up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant <clears throat> so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? Or it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do will, well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, but which came into being in a night and perished in the night. So should I too not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 12,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And so the story ends, the story of Jonah ends. And once again we see Jonah would rather die than live with a God who forgives his enemies. So as we've seen, Jonah knows and even quotes the character and compassion of God. And rather than seeing and admitting his own foolishness, Jonah prays that he would die. And so we see that Jonah is not just miserable, but he's a, he's a miserable person. And in response to Jonah's miserableness, what does God do? Time and time again, he shows him mercy. God provides a plant for him to keep him cool in the shade while Jonah waits in hope for uh, God to judge Nineveh. And he is glad for this plant. The text says so, but it doesn't say that he thanked God. Rather, he curses God when God directs a worm to eat up the plant and take it away from him. But Jonah didn't work for the plant, so why should he care or be mad at God? He has no right to be angry. And so, again, for the third time, he begs for death. And further, God asks him, the book ends, God asks him, is your anger justified? Is your anger misplaced? 
and Jonah rebukes God. He calls out against God and is content in pitting himself. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a right to be angry. This was my plan. And just in foolishness. And so as God concludes the story, God himself concludes the story. He softly, notice his rebuke too, as he rebukes Jonah. He does it with compassion. And he does it with another act of kindness. And Jonah takes no mention of it. And so uh, it ends in this uh, hypothetical rhetorical question that um, even though Jonah holds the plant to be more valuable than 120,000 people, he asks him, what about more, even more than the cattle too? And so, uh, will you not also care for the beasts of the field? And these people who were wretched, they were still made in the image of God, and infinitely more important. And so God rebukes him by questioning the legitimacy of his anger. And so, I think the author, whether this is Jonah going back through and recalling on his account um, to Nineveh, or this is some other one after him, the author intentionally leaves this hypothetical question in tension so that we may ask and reflect. The, the author of Jonah wants us to ask and reflect on this question. Are we like Jonah? And so we can ask the question to ourselves, are you okay with the fact that God is willing to be merciful to your enemies? And is your behavior at odds with what you know about God's mercy. We know Jonah's behavior was at odds with what he knew. He knew God was merciful, but he had no intentions of being merciful to the people he didn't like. And so, but thank God that the mercy of God is wider than our hatred of our enemies. And so, what happens when we're left with this question? What happens when we realize that we're more like Jonah than we'd like to admit? And what happens when your coworker maligns you for your faith or mocks the Lord? Do you condemn him in your, in your heart? Or is your heart rather saddened because you wish that they would just be able to repent and be brought to repentance? What about the family member who is an unbeliever when they curse you and call you ignorant for believing in God? Do you get angry and hope that you never share the gospel with them so they can go to hell? Or do you pray for them instead? So just like with any sin, we, in order to be freed from this merciless behavior that Jonah was caught up in, the only answer is to look to Jesus. And I think looking at Jesus in this way is exactly how I think the book of Jonah points towards Christ. So if we consider this real quickly, what is the role of the prophet? Um, Obviously, the kings instituted in Israel, the priests and the prophets all had a specific role. But I think the main duty, and there's probably some leeway in, in their flexibility in their role, but the, me, the main God-appointed duty of the prophet is to continually preach equally the warning coming of judgment balanced alongside the promise of salvation following true repentance. I think that is the call of the prophet. And so if we take that, we assume that is the role of the prophet. Um, so the prophet then is God, the God-appointed person to mediate between the sinful people and himself we might ask, well, how did Jonah fare as God's prophet? If being the mediator between a people and, and, pre- and preaching the full message of God, of salvation and judgment, his own account says that he's failed. And so Jonah failed to be a good prophet to his people. So we know nothing, hardly anything, of his ministry to Israel, but to the Gentiles, to Nineveh, 
he failed to be a prophet, a good prophet, a faithful prophet. And though salvation was only of the Lord of Israel, nevertheless, God has always set apart Israel so they might be a holy people, so they might be a light to the world, so that the other nations might know the Lord through them and be blessed. And that is the promise of Abraham that we see earlier in this series. And Jonah was aware of this. And so we recognize that though God had chosen Israel out as a people for himself, this doesn't nullify the duty of Jonah to tell the other nations about the God who can save. But to contrast this with Jonah, what do we see in the person of Jesus? We certainly don't see someone who has forgotten the mercy of God. But in contrast, Jesus fulfills what Jonah failed to do. Jonah was miserable, but Christ was victorious in making the salvation and mercy of the Lord known. In Christ, we see one who fulfills the role of the prophet, one who doesn't neglect even to go to the Gentiles we see in the Gospels, but offers salvation to all who repent. And we might think, well, it was just of Jonah to wish condemnation on Nineveh. They were an evil people. But God wanted to spare them anyway. And so the mercy and compassion of God, rather than being thrown onto the city of Nineveh, was placed on the Son of God 750,000 years later. So unlike Jonah, when Jesus was crucified by those who hated him, who was totally within his right to step down off the cross, but he didn't. In order that God's mercy might be displayed, he willingly chose to suffer. And never has God's compassion and mercy in all of history been so great as it was in the life of Christ, who lived for people who would repent and died for people who would repent and served and was crucified and bled for them. And so Jesus Christ not only makes the mercy of God possible for Nineveh and for us, but because of his life, death, and resurrection, he becomes the very mercy of God that the people of Nineveh got to experience. And that's true of us, too, if we believe in him. And so we see, just as the fish was God's chosen instrument of mercy to Jonah, as he laid three days in its belly, and the earth swallowed, um, just in that same way, the earth swallowed up Christ and his death for three days as he becomes the mercy of God to all of mankind. And just as God graciously caused the fish to spit Jonah back up and save Nineveh, even more so, we know that we who believe in Jesus are saved because Christ has risen from the grave. And Jesus Jesus even foretells of his death and resurrection um, in Matthew 12. He says, and answers the Pharisees, but he said and answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. And Paul also attests to the mercy of God in Christ's life, death, and resurrection when he says in 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, just as Jonah had been raised on the third day. And so Christ shows us the mercy of God by sacrificing himself for us, freeing us from our unforgiving, selfish natures, giving us power to be like him. And so if Christ 
by living and dying and serving and sacrificing himself for us, gives us the power to be like him. Why, I mean, you can ask it yourself, why am I so often like Jonah? And so I have some, a, few, a few things for us to look at, a few questions of application. <clears throat> First of all, we need to ask ourselves, how can we look at what Jesus has done for us on our behalf and fail to be merciful? The answer is, we can't. And so, the first thing I think we need to do when we realize we're too much like Jonah, in order to be merciful, we need to repent. We need to come to know daily the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, that, that God is just and able to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, we remember, in order to be merciful, we must confess there's enough mercy and the grace of God for us. So in order to be merciful, we first need to repent and receive God's mercy because anyone apart from Christ cannot truly be merciful unto death. But a second way for us to be merciful, Lamentations tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. And therefore, I think as Jonah failed to do why he wasn't merciful? Well, because he didn't realize God's mercies were new every day. He wasn't seeing God's mercy in his life. And if we don't recall God's mercy in our life, we're going to fail also to be merciful. And so, <clears throat> we see Jonah was disciplined, he was disobedient, and he was miserable because he was merciless. Because he failed to see the mercy of God in his life. So three, being merciful means imitating the character of Jesus. So even... When others revile us, whether it's our family or our co-workers, even when we don't feel like being kind, recognizing how God has loved us, we must do it anyway. We must love Jesus enough to follow him and to love him as we love our enemies. How else can God's mercy reach the world if not through his chosen vessel, the church? And so, as we close, I want us to look at three things. And what happens when we fail to be merciful to give us some more um, encouragement to, to strive to see exactly in our life how unmerciful we actually are. So one, um, what happens when we fail to be merciful? Well, first and foremost, we show ourselves that we've not received mercy. And so James uh, 2.13 says that there's no mercy for those who do not show it. And so I hope that we can be kind of kind of anxious and kind of scared um, so that we do not presume on the riches and kindness of God that he's granted us mercy if we're not going to show it to other people. And so you need to ask yourself, have I received this mercy? Because sometimes my life doesn't show it. But secondly, um, when, when we fail to be merciful, another um, insinuation to, to help us to be merciful, when we fail to be Merciful, we fail to act as God's chosen means of mercy to the world. And so we know that God's chosen vessel um, is the church to bring mercy to the world. The, the way that God brings mercy uh, to the world is, is through his people. And so if we fail to do our job, the power of the cross of Christ becomes void of all of its power. And we know that God can certainly save, just as he did um, in the weak preaching of Jonah and the Ninevites. But if the church is full of selfish you know, punks like Jonah, um, 
who have planks in their eye, who are pharisaical. How, if we if we're only bringing condemnation rather than mercy, how is God going to save people through His church? How can a people repent if we are not eager to share the gospel with them? If we do not treat them with kindness when they malign us, and so take note that if the church fails to be merciful, it proves to be a false church. First John shows us this, that God's people will be merciful. Not perfect, but nevertheless growing and hoping to imitate Jesus. And so, if you aren't merciful, and if you're like me, um, you need to repent. You need to prove that you are the true people of God by repenting. If you have no compassion for the lost, you need to repent. If you seek more to be like Jonah than Jesus, which all of us do at some time or another, then we must all seek to repent and seek God's kindness because he's got plenty of it. We see that's in his character. But third, and probably the most disastrous for us, um, when we fail to be merciful, we hinder the glory of God. And when we, the objects of God's mercy, are unmerciful, we hinder and obstruct the glory of God. Especially, that's ironic, fitting to the book of Jonah, um, because we are God's called out people. We don't want, by, by our new natures, don't want to hinder the glory of God. We want it to be, we see God as beautiful. Um, if you are a child of God, you love the Lord and you want Him to be magnified. Um, but He won't be if you are unmerciful. And so, to withhold the very mercy of God that He's granted us in Christ is to cover up the glory of God. And we actually work against His glory and our own good when we don't show His kindness and mercy. And But we should reflect and know that God showed no partiality when he saved us. And, and by God's own choosing, the fact that he's elected us, as we've read out of the confession this morning, or this afternoon, that God has chosen us without deciding that we get a say-so. And so that doesn't give us the right to pick and choose who we show mercy to. We are to share the gospel to all people, to forgive all people, to be kind to all people, Regardless, showing no partiality, showing no distinction. We must love all people. We are commanded to do that. When if we fail on this, we obscure our own message while at the same time defiling the name of God. We, come, we become exactly like the Pharisees. We become exactly like Jonah did and Jonah was. But if we realize that God does whatever means necessary to bring his people to repentance, make them more like himself, if we see the book of Jonah for what it really is, we'll know that God will humble us like he did to Jonah. We know that God will do whatever means necessary to make us persevere until the end. And so that should frighten you a little bit, that God loves to discipline his children because they will come to repentance. And so we want the world to be judged due to its own hard-heartedness, not on account of our failure to tell them about the salvation of the Lord. And so... Reflect on that tonight. And so, if we know that Jesus Christ is the very compassion and mercy of God, I pray that we do our best to show it to a world that is filled with unbelieving people. Just as Jesus healed the sick and made the blind to see and forgave sinners and taught the truth of God and lived it out, we are to be like Him. Jesus was and always will be the true expression of the mercy of God. And as His people... We are to be like him. So this means that we may show his kindness to our neighbors, our wives, our children, our co-workers, even when they're as evil as the Ninevites.
For when we fail to show his mercy, we prove that we don't know the mercy of God and that we don't know Christ at all. So I pray that we may prove that we have been received with this mercy and that his mercy will may make us more like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your infinite mercy in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We pray that you will make us continually less like Jonah and more like your son as you conform us to his image. God, I pray tonight as we sing and we take communion and we worship you that it may not be defiled by our selfishness, but we may truly see the planks in our own eyes, that we may see how we are merciless to our neighbors, to our co-workers and family. May you show us where we err. May you give us mercy. May we turn to you and seek your guidance as we hope to grow, being more like Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.